Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Angelus, and this is episode four of Story Mode, the podcast for Storyboard, where I discuss board games, games I've played, things relevant to gaming culture, and often a big topic related to gaming. In this week, I have a couple of sections. I will have my typical retail segment and a little bit of a content warning. Some of the content discussed relates to a suicidal person that was in my shop. So be aware of that content. I have an elevator pitch for Pandemic. During my Chit Encounters segment, I discuss two new-to-me games, one being This War of Mine and another being the exotic series of The Unlock and another being the exotic adventures of the Unlock series. I also have a deep dive into Root the board game following its win for the Golden Geek Award and a little bit of analysis as to why this war game is particularly popular. And that provides me with the segue to my big topic of the week, which is the role of war in board games as a theme and as mechanisms. Let's get started. Before I begin today's segment of retail, I must put a small content warning that I will be discussing the issue of suicide. And while I don't go into detail, you do need to know that it is a topic being broached here. So the last week has been a rather interesting week for me. We have had our Easter break and in Australia, the 25th is also Anzac Day, which is a public holiday. So we've had three, four public holidays in close succession. And just like Christmas, Easter can be a time that brings up a lot of volatile emotions for people. One of the things that happened to me this week is I was approached by a person on the floor during a busy time and they asked me, what would I do if he was being suicidal? Understandably, this question side-blinded me. I was not in an environment where I was expecting to be approached by this topic, but given the engagement and his presentation, it was very clear that he was not in a good mental state. In that situation, I was not capable of responding to it well. And so the best thing that I was able to do was look up the number for Lifeline, make sure he had the number and asked if he had a means to contact. So I followed up with my circle of friends online afterwards and the general advice that I was given in the situation where I don't want to assume the emotional responsibility for taking care of a person like that is to call an ambulance and to emphasize the intensity or the immediacy of the problem. However, at least giving them some kind of contact or a lifeline in this case, it's hard to know what the correct or the best response is in these kinds of situations. And certainly when I was put on the spot, it was hard to process. I bring this up as a topic because Christmas time is a time where a lot of people have very deep and troubled emotions come up to the surface and it is a time of higher suicide rates. It is not unfeasible to imagine that other retail stores in this period, especially maybe places like game stores, might be reached out in this manner. And so I want to put this out there as an opportunity for our staff to think forward to what they might do in what their contingency would be in such a situation. Hopefully you are never put in this situation as I would. And hopefully if you're put in this situation, you'll be able to respond adequately to their problems but within your capacity to respond. On a much lighter note, I had a very interesting engagement this week. 
And I'm going to bring it up because I do think it reflects on some of the experiences I have as a queer gamer. This week, uh, there was a young man who came into the store with his family and the way he was dressed very strongly indicated to me that he was queer. It was clear to me that the relationship between him and his parents was good and they were supportive. But I always have a very special reaction when I can tell that there are queer people in my store and especially young queer people. It's actually quite exciting because it instantly puts me back in that position when I was a young gamer coming out to my own sexuality and also discovering games at the same time. There's this very interesting parallel development where you start developing a taste for games and discovering your sexuality. So there's this compound effect. But it is also a process that can often be very isolating. You're discovering two aspects of yourself and undergoing a discovery of your sexuality can be alienating at the best of times, especially when it's at high school. And gaming, while it can be a bit of an escapism, certainly when I was coming out, wasn't necessarily welcoming to people of different sexualities or at least not in any observable way. So I always find myself reaching out and connecting to people who are queer in my store just because it's such an intense experience to be in that moment where you recognize that the other person in your presence is family. And I use that term specifically. You know you're among others who share this experience with you. And you always play it up a little bit. You know, I might put on a particular song that lets people know, oh yes, I've been listening to Drag Race. I might discuss the artwork that I've been doing because they're usually rainbow flavored. And so I will put out little flags and little feelers to indicate that I'm part of the family. And it doesn't ever have to be strong. It doesn't ever have to be blatant because people who are queer will pick up on those very subtle signals. And I just can't tell you how powerful and electric that engagement is when you have those moments of mutual recognition. It is something I find very unique to the queer experience because there's so much of the, of the world around us that we're told not to express, or we can only have particular forms of flamboyancy and expression permitted in particular ways and times and spaces. And so it gives us a special permission to know, okay, we can let our guard down just in this place and time. And it is such a relief. So a very candid and a very personal and a very emotional week for me on this week's retail. Today's elevator pitch is Pandemic. Pandemic is a cooperative risk management game where you play a team of scientists who are attempting to eliminate four diseases that are threatening to wipe humanity out. You have an overarching goal of collecting research samples and bringing them to a research station to find cures. This requires all players to coordinate their efforts so that they can be at the right place at the right time to share and exchange resources. However, at the end of every player's turn, the diseases spread and multiply, and as they build up, they can potentially break out, bringing you to the brink of destruction. So not only do you have to work cooperatively towards your ultimate goal, but you must run around putting out spot fires. You win if you are able to find cures for all four diseases, and you lose if the diseases spiral out of control or if you effectively run out of time. In today's episode of Chit Encounters, 
I will be covering two games, although one of them is more of a series. Unlock the Exotic Adventures and This War of Mine, the board game. The Exotic Adventures of Unlock are the fourth set of three that Asmodee has released. These include The Night of the Boogeyman, Scheherazade's Last Tale and Expedition Challenger and that ranks easy, medium and hard respectively. I will say up front that this is probably the first time that I played a trinity of releases where I found myself either disappointed or unsatisfied with the game as a whole. What I have found is that as Unlock has gone on with every subs subsequent generation, the experimentality has veered more towards using gimmicks on the app. And I've found that within this set of three, the gimmicks began to intrude upon the experience of the game itself. If I could divulge a little bit with magic circle theory, which basically says there is some kind of uh, invisible contract when we sit down to play a game, the rules of the game create a framework by which we can participate and establish a set of norms. I think Unlock, by virtue of its permutations, has established a set of norms on puzzle solving. And the more that it relies upon a gimmick with the app, the more it steps out of the expectations set. Now, this is a two-edged sword. On one hand, they are demanding the players be more inventive and think outside the box and offer more creative solutions. Unfortunately, I have found that they've, in my head at least, crossed some invisible line that strays outside the boundaries of expectations. And so... I would get to the puzzle solving and go, well, okay, I guess that makes sense, but I'm not sure how I was supposed to intuit that that's what they wanted from me. It was all a case of this makes sense in hindsight, but I only understand that this was an option now that I got there. I also found that in particular, the ending for Scheherazade's Last Tale was a very subjective query. There was a puzzle that you had to solve, which... That's my cat in the background. There was a puzzle that you had to solve that required you to explain what happened. And I put words in different combinations and I found that all of them in one interpretation or another could easily explain the why and wherefore of that scenario. So there didn't seem to be an obvious answer and it was a little bit of trial and error. With Expedition Challenger, there were definitely a lot more puzzles that involved the app as a centerpiece rather than a support piece. And I think in my mind, that's where the threshold is crossed. Because for me, I'm sitting down playing a board game and I'm still of the experience that when a supporting app or something electronic takes me out of the board game experience and into its own self, that I'm leaving the board game and into a different experience or altogether. And that was a disjointed thing for me. So I can't really say that I walked away satisfied with the Unlock series for this latest entry. I understand that they're trying to be a little bit more inventive and I understand that these puzzles do demand more from me as a player, but I don't want to have to step outside the experiential norms of what I'm wanting to get from the game when I sit down to it. I may as well play a computer game at that. As for this war of mine, this War of Mine is based off a computer game of the same name where you play, play a collective of survivors in the midst of a civil war. So you're civilians, you're trapped inside a house, 
trapped inside a city that's sort of been barricaded. And so the normal economic activity of the city has fallen and you, there's no shops, there's no food. It's all sort of scavenging and looting and that kind of stuff. So it's a survival game. Not exactly horror, but it is definitely bleak because of the war context. Like the computer game, your goal is to survive to the end. And to do that, you need to venture out, gather resources, improve your home estate, do all sorts of things like that. And that's going to often push you to make sometimes morally questionable decisions. And in fact, the whole premise of the original computer game was to show what happens to civilians in war zones. And that was part of its point. And this does carry through, but here's where it starts falling apart. We played just two players, it took us about an hour and a half to get from hitting the table to up and running. And this is in spite of the fact the game offers itself as a open and play kind of deal. Yes, you technically can just pick up the journal and step through the parts of the game and learn it as you go. But it is not a straightforward process. There's a lot of details in some of those steps. And to the point where I would have to rely upon this material to remember the sequence of day. And that being said, I found uh, we got to something like the third hour and then we were getting to the second day of about six. The game says, hey, you can save your game at the end of a day and come back. And I think that's the intention. But for me, that was way too much time demand from what I was getting out of the game. In playing the game, I felt that there could be a lot of the elements streamlined. And there was a bunch streamlined for a board game compared to what you do on the computer game. And some of that was a necessary abstraction from taking it from a computer game and making it into a board game. But still, there were so many moving parts for what I think the game was meant to offer. Instead of particular rooms, a lot of the building structures in the home base could have been a little bit more simplified, a little bit more reduced. The expeditions out they also could have been streamlined a little bit better. There was something interesting in going out in those expeditions and sort of dealing with things blow by blow, but it did mean a single day had two effective parts that were a little bit disconnected in terms of gameplay. And so one, the flow of one would interrupt the flow of the other. And while they did seem both very interesting kind of games in their own right, together they sat next to each other rather than really integrated with each other. And so it just became a lot of administration to keep the game moving. Uh, There was also a lot of space where I was just, I was not paying attention to what was on the other side of the board just because there was so much table space and there was a lot of detail on all the pieces. And so for me, it became very frustrating and difficult to just try and constantly mentally map what was going on as I was playing. And for all these reasons, when it got to that point where I was saying, and now you can start the second day, we were setting up and both myself and the person playing just hit that point of, we just didn't care. And we were much more happy to give up the investment of our time thus far, put the game away and bring something else out. I don't think a game should ever hit that point where you're exhausted to continue it. And this is interesting because I understand for a lot of other people, this game has been really compelling. I did flick through the storybook and I found a lot of the parts there to be particularly interesting. You know, there's some good writing there, but I think I would have much rather just sort of sat down and flick through and just sort of experienced the vignettes devoid of the game because the game was not immersing me at all. So those are my takeaways from a not complete run through of the game, but I think a significant sample of the experience. It is not a game I'm going to be going back to, unfortunately. And thank you very much. That's been today's Chit Encounters. 
today's deep dive, I will be covering the game Root. Root from Leader Games recently won the Golden Geek Award. It is an interesting it is interesting but perhaps not surprising that it won this particular award. It is an award voted on by popularity on the Board Game Geek website, and that tends to favor heavier, more complex games. So I usually look at the Board Game Geek Award as something that shows good innovation or good appeal within a more involved game. I think Root is noteworthy for a number of reasons. It is the spiritual successor to Vast the Crystal Caverns, as this game and the previous game both use asymmetric gameplay as one of their interesting ideas. So in Root, you take on one of four factions. You can be the Marquis de Cat, and they focus on uh, industrialization and expansionism. You can play the Airy, which focus on a preordained set of activities. You can play the Woodland Alliance, which are about the popular uprising of the good folk. You can also play the Lone Wolf Vagabond. Each of these factions pursues their goals and objectives in specific manners. They will, you have to balance the abilities of the other factions off from each other. There is a very interesting tipping point towards the late phase where it's clear that one faction is starting to get above the others. It's subtle, so if you don't know the game, it is a thing that you can easily miss. And certainly in a number of games that I've observed, where players don't necessarily know what to look for. They will be focused on the person that's been antagonistic to them, and because those factions are going at loggerheads, one of the other factions is able to sneak up towards victory. That being said, I think that means that this is a game that rewards learning it more than just merely playing it. There is a lot of discovery in this game, because you are discovering how a faction plays. You are discovering how a faction interacts with the other specific factions. And you are discovering what the strategies are for getting ahead, but also what are the strategies for keeping other factions in check from a particular point of view. Typically, that requires negotiating support and interactions and getting people to gang up on leaders. This does mean it is a game where you will have people trying to bring the leader down, but then also get on top. It's a little bit munchkin like that, but it's not as easy to just create this constant cycle there is a definite trajectory, there is definite momentum, and there is a finite end game that starts culminating as someone hits that point. I think this is one of the strengths of Root. The end game crystallizes very clearly, coherently, and as that peak happens, you can feel the game reach that climax. So the payoff of all the activities that are going on prior, regardless of your faction, feel like they organically hit that high point. So Root manages to capture an excellent game arc. You can feel building tension, the release of that tension, and the reward of that tension. I think that is the core of what makes this game so fun to play. That being said, there are a lot of people who can't get into this game. And I find that's usually people who are not wanting to learn multiple different factions. Uh, there are some people who don't like the strong asymmetry of the game, and that's just a particular taste preference. I think Root is also noteworthy for another reason which I mentioned last week. Root is effectively a war game that has been made palatable to a more family setting. I believe the theme, the structure, and 
the comparative simplicity, drawing deeply from the counterinsurgency series, makes it a war game that people not necessarily interested in historical realism can play. I also think the levity of the artwork, the brightness and the, let, let's say, the, the tweeness of, of the theme helps lighten the tone of effectively a war game. There are a couple of observations. The main one is theme can completely repitch a particular type of game series or game mechanisms. Artwork can do a lot to change the tone and therefore the experience of a type of game. And I do think that the success of Root should be an indication to maybe the manufacturers of heavy, dry games that there is a larger audience for their game if they know how to pitch it thematically. And this isn't necessarily just direct to war games. I can just as easily point the finger to sort of Euro games and the ubiquity of trading in the Mediterranean. But I digress. Root recently finished on Kickstarter for their second expansions, where they will be introducing Crows and Moles as two new factions, one being Espionage and the other being Smugglers. However, as I noted, it is the second expansion. The first one, the Riverfolk expansion, does bring in two new factions, one being the Riverfolk themselves, so Mercenary Beavers, which you can trade with for benefits, and then there's the Cult Lizard Folk, who take the discarded cards, so those cards, the creatures that have been rejected from the woods, and turn them to their side. Both of these are very interesting mechanisms. I understand that in terms of balance, the lizard folk can be a little bit weaker compared to some of the others. And I remember at the time, there was a response from Leader Games saying, well, our balancing mechanism is to provide a tournament playstyle where you would rotate between factions and have an overall winner. That's not a very satisfying solution for me, unfortunately. I want the balance to be there within a complete experience of the game, not through multiple iterations of the game. I understand it should be a game that I'm going to play frequently, you know, that's desirable, but if I need to derive whole satisfaction of a game from multiple iterations, then I have a question on that. War and combat represent a recurring theme in the world of gaming. Of the many historical subjects, war easily lends itself to being gamified. It has discrete objectives, intrinsic antagonism, and various structural apparatus that allow itself to be gamified, and various structural apparatus that are good for organizing games. However, the way games approach and treat war is symptomatic of our approach to conventional history. It tends to sanitize an underlined war with glory. Modern games represent stylized renditions of reality, frequently with many aspects of the realism glossed over. These are necessary abstractions of real-world phenomena, like war, since a game cannot hope to accurately simulate the totality of a thing such as war. Much like conventional history, there are key ideas of what gets glossed over. The definition of war games is a little ambiguous. At its core, these are games that depict military actions and campaigns. They range from real and imaginary historical periods. They scale from small unit skirmishes to large detailed conflicts and global war. Perhaps more strange, war games 
necessarily feature conflict, but not all games that feature military conflict constitute war games. As an example, there are civilization games such as Through the Ages or Civilization and a New Dawn. These are not considered war games, even though war is a constant refrain from them. A war game has war as its primary means of conflict rather than a subsidiary one. The most iconic form of war games are the chit and counter style of military simulation, such as those published by GMT, Avalon Hill, Danversen Games and Compass Games, etc, etc. These type of games are iconic for the use of cardboard chits to depict individual military units. However, miniatures or wooden blocks are not uncommon. But the critical element of all of these games is the reduction of war to the tactical operization of its figures, components, and units. And the simulation focuses on the tactics rather than any other aspect of war. While war games primarily feature historical engagement, they also indulge fantasy, science fiction, or alternative history. The range and scope of this subject stems from the immense popularity of the genre. Currently on BoardGameGeek, there are approximately 15,100 entries for war games, and this is divided across 16 distinct historical subgenres. And World War II alone comprises nearly 5,000 of them. War games and game design have an interesting reciprocal relationship. War games first emerged not as a form of entertainment, but instead as a type of military exercise or training operation. One of the earliest formalized war games was the 1824 Kriegspiel, which was mass produced as a commercial war game in 1983. There has been a very special synergy between war games as a mode of gaming with the gamification of military operations as a training exercise. Many modern militaries use simulations specifically to train their officers with tactical and strategic experience. More recently, intelligence agencies have begun looking at other types of games to train their operatives. Suffice to say, the success of war games is one of the elements that has helped bring modern board gaming to the level of prominence it currently enjoys. The existence of miniatures gaming owes its entire heritage to this ancestry. Similarly, Dungeons and Dragons, and arguably therefore all of tabletop role-playing, has some precedence in the introduction of fantasy elements into wargaming. Broadly speaking, the American heritage of board games draws strongly from this tradition. When we talk about American design sensibilities, you can see a pedigree that draws liberally from the pool of war games. For many years, the mass market games tended to coexist alongside wargaming, and both of these represented a divide between the general market and the hobby section of the market, while Risk represented a curious instance where the two paths converged. One of the prevailing claims made of war games is their potential opportunity to gauge with history. However, I find that the idea that war games teach us history is a convenient half-truth. Yes, most war games feature historical settings. Yes, most war games incorporate elements of history. Twilight Struggle attempts to encapsulate the entire Cold War. Their, the cards themselves are rife with little vignettes from the history of the Cold War. Churchill simulates the tension of geopolitical relations between the trinity of great powers, the UK, USA and USSR, in the wake of the Second World War. However, all of these are shallow cliff notes of history. They are snippets of curious details of conflicts. While they may be focus points for those conflicts, the cards themselves or these little 
aspects of these history have no context. As gamers, we're not expected to understand them. We're only expected to observe and receive them. I don't know, maybe if you've got an educational background or you're self-taught in the histories of these subjects, you can fill in the gaps with your existing knowledge base. Maybe it's unreasonable that the average person playing these games can learn history by playing them. Maybe the historical advantage is that the game will inspire people to discover more about the historical period on their own right. However, my disquiet about the historicity of these games stems from their claim to historical authenticity. And I guess because their major selling point is their realism, they're going to try to ground themselves in some idea of history and offer players an opportunity to immerse themselves in key historical conflicts. And this is because war games sell themselves on their simulation. In touting themselves as simulation, these games use historical events as a means to draw you into the space they create. But in doing so, they necessarily divorce themselves from the historical context. They offer discrete engagements and abstract away most of the political or economical facets of the conflicts that have produced these wars. Wars are not just a form of conflict. Wars are the product of political break. They're the product of material breakdown. They're the product of social breakdown. And while war games do portray a particular idea of history, it's a history born through a lens of conflict, one defined by its wars. More specifically, history here through the machinations of military conflict and military industrialization. Wars are historical events and often defining ones, but they're often like icebergs, the most visible part of a deeper phenomenon of state-sponsored conflict. So, you know, there's the gamer in me, and on one hand, I recognize the necessary level of abstraction needed to create a war game. But there's also the historian and academic in me that looks at these games and finds their approach to war and the politics of war almost far too crude. Is this the correct approach? That's the wrong question. Military games create their own magical circle. They are very specific about the type of entertainment they're offering. They're very specific about the modality of that engagement. And people go into playing these games with that understanding. But myself as a person who isn't necessarily going to buy into that space, I still think a challenge can be leveled to these games about, you know, in the wake of Root, how can they make these types of games more palatable to a broader audience and also the question should they now i'm sitting here and there's still a large number of ideas and topics that i could use to approach this question i have queries relating to the idea of statism and war i have thoughts on the ideas of feminism and war the the industrial process of war itself but i've already gone on quite a long time for a podcast So maybe this is indicative that I need to return to this topic at a later point in time. And for now, I'm going to sign off. So that was episode four of Story Mode. Uh, If you're still listening with me, thanks for sticking all the way to the end. I think 
I got a little bit rambly towards the end of the war game segment, but that's because there's a lot on my mind when it comes to that topic. If you want to, for those of you wanting to support me, there's a couple of options. You can just do a simple follow. You can do a share of this podcast or share of one of my articles or reviews. That's always greatly appreciated. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc. I also have a Patreon. And so that's there if you want to throw money at me. All of these things can be found from my website, storyboardgamer.com. And good night.